the Bitterfly Podcast. Knowledge is food, bitches. Eat up. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the Bitterfly Podcast. This week, we're talking to Tuche Balik, who is an intimacy and sex expert and a PhD candidate for holistic psychology and sexology. You can find her on Instagram at T-U-G-C-E Balik, Tuche Balik on Instagram. She's also on TikTok. She makes some really fucking cute videos. They're so informational, <laughs> you guys. Hi. Hi. Thanks for being on. How I can't you? believe I just found you. I just found you on Instagram and I was like, this girl's tight. Let's talk. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I, I'm obsessed with your podcast and I'm so happy to um to happy to have this conversation with you. I'm so excited. So you're a certified intimacy coach. Your Instagram touches like so much on sexuality. Like one thing that you said in a post that I thought was really intriguing is that sex can be used as medicine. Mm. Um, like, how did you get into this? Are you a pervert? Like, like how did you <laughs> get into wanting to help other people with their intimacy and sex life? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting topic to definitely be working in um, and a very important one. Uh, two folds to how I actually ended up here. It's definitely not the, um, I guess, route that most sex uh, coaches or sex therapists take, which is kind of doing your, um, you know, psychology degree and then clinical psychology, and then they kind of focus on it. I've kind of ended up here in like a weird way um one was because I had shitty relationships throughout my <laughs> early 20s that I think a lot of people can relate to we one after the that. other <laughs> exactly. we all have that origin story it's actually exactly sad and crazy it's manifested into this monster that I am today shout out to my exes yeah I've had some really shitty relationships and I kept failing at you know having consistently long-term relationships and I just kind of wanted to understand what the fuck was wrong with me or what the fuck was wrong with the person that I was dating and like what what was going on and just didn't have the tools or knowledge to navigate like my relationships um or my sex life and um another part is I actually my background is in um environmental consulting and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very much, uh, and in my practice as well, like integrate sustainability into everything I do. And I think it's important to what's going on right now. And it kind of hit me while I was uh, in Davos last year talking to some, I don't know, some old man that's, you know, <laughs> sitting in the chair of some really important company. And it just kind of hit me that like, if we are so disconnected from ourselves, let alone like understand our relationships, how are we supposed to really make sense of the ecosystem that we're living in, let alone like care for it enough to actually make a change. So um, I got certified thinking I would do this on the side. It's cute. You know, it's going to be like a fun fact that I share on dates. <laughs> like I'm a relationship coach. <laughs> and then it just became a monster of its own. Um, when the pandemic hit, I think a lot of people have different stories of like how it went down, like the first couple of months. I used to be based in London and I flew out to Canada for a meeting. It was supposed to be like in and out. I had a backpack, two underwear, one shirt, you know, in and out. And then <laughs> the pandemic hit and I was stuck there for seven months alone. And I didn't get to speak to anyone with like existential crisis on top of this pandemic all at once. So I just kind of decided, you know what, like, I'm going to apply for a PhD. I'm super interested. I'm certified. And then everything kind of had a snowball effect. And here we are talking. <laughs> so where, wait, where are you at now? Because you were in London and then you went to a business trip that ended up being seven months. And yeah. now what are you doing? I'm, I'm currently in Turkey. So I'm half Turkish, half Canadian. I'm currently in Turkey. I wanted to, I haven't been in Turkey for the past 10 years. So I wanted to come back here to just regroup and be with my family for a bit before I, hopefully like many 
millennials want to backpack a little bit and just you know like live abroad but let's see if that's even possible after <laughs> all this shit but yeah that's awesome so what kind of certifications did you have to get to be a sexologist it's currently the industry itself is very unregulated so technically anyone can start calling themselves like a sex coach and within sexuality itself is very um there's very different types of sex coaches like some people focus on men some people focus on women some people focus on like tantra like it's all very different but i went through um a, a university by someone who sits on the board of the american association sexual educators um her name is dr eva cadell so she runs a certification program you do it on your own pace and it can take from i think anywhere from like uh 6 months to like 2 years depending on like how aggressively you you know go through the program so i finished that program and then i had some add-ons to it so i'm currently getting my tantra certification and then i'm also doing now my phd on human sexuality and psychology so it, it all kind of binds together so this is kind of the route i took but of course there's a lot of also clinical psychologists who focus on sex therapy what i do is less therapy and more coaching um and i will go into therapy i think once i finish my phd but it's different it's one is i guess if you want to do more research one is working directly with people or couples in um you know issues around problems they might have in like intimacy or like their sex life so Okay, so I interviewed somebody who does like mental health coaching a few episodes ago and he was talking about how like counseling and therapy versus like coaching. Coaching is more helping with people that don't have like drastically terrible problems, you know, with their intimacy. Is that kind of the same for you? I think it it would depend on like very much like case to case basis. Like I know my limits of like to what extent I can help someone. Um this could be in terms of either dysfunctions they have or traumas they have and then I think um it's up to depending on like you know the client and you after a call to then realize like if I should refer them um ethically or you know if I can help them but um yeah I think therapy versus coaching um there's always a boundary where I think coaches know when they need to refer someone to you know a therapist because it causes like some mental health um you know um maybe help that they also would need to then combat like the issue that they're coming to you. What would a session look like if I came to you and I I wanted to do some intimacy coaching because yeah. I'm just not comfortable like with myself <laughs> or my relationship. Yeah, um again, before I even have a session, I have normally like an exploratory call with someone, individual or couples, I work with both. And um this is the call where initially I listen and ask you a bunch of questions. This is about understanding your uh, sexual as well your as well as your like relationship past um you know kind of getting an idea of what you've been through and as well as describing to me why you're coming to me so some people might come because they have one single issue or some people just um just don't know how to essentially maybe get in touch with certain parts of their sexuality what whether that be like pleasure because they can't orgasm or um or there's couples that just um are having problems like sexually so it's hard to describe but it starts off with um one or two calls where we really dig deep and understand like your history set some goals what your um what you would like the outcome to be kind of realize like if I can help or not. So without going into like detail and like outing people, what are some of the specific issues that people have like when they decide to go see a sex therapist? 
like sexual dysfunction like I yeah. can't orgasm or I can't get a boner yeah. but like what are some other issues that people typically have yeah there's a lot of issues where there's either couples who have been together for a while and they you know complain that their sex lives is very dull and they don't really know how to like reignite that spark um, and what they can do um, there's also couples that um, you know, either one person in the relationship, or if you're, you know, like in a, a open or polyamorous relationship, or like one partner of the many, might have like low libido. So, like, how do you navigate if someone has a very high sex drive and someone has a low sex drive? Like, that causes a lot of problems. I also do relationship coaching, so I coach a lot of couples that have a lot of like conflict management. And sometimes I think you just need a third person to be more objective and you know work through issues. I work with people who, you know, one person maybe have cheated, but they want to work on the relationship. We figure out like if that's possible. And then for individuals, I also work with people who are going through breakups and like, you know, when we hit a breakup, a lot of shit comes up. So I'm doing some inner work with them and you know, navigating them that, through that journey, essentially. And even just people who want to self-pleasure and they don't really know how to start or where to start or what to do. So, you know, maybe we're working only, normally it's four weeks minimum together, um, up to a couple of months. And it all depends, but it's definitely an array of topics and interests, depending on what people would like. Like, what kinds of things are you talking about in these sessions to kind of get the person, like, healing or growing or thinking? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, sexuality and sexual problems themselves are, I see them as almost like an outcome that has happened. So in order to heal that outcome, let's say it's a dysfunction, or let's say you cannot orgasm and you just feel numb around your, let's say this is the issue that you came to me with, like for the sake of, uh, for the sake of the conversation. Uh, It usually is not, it usually starts back from we start with mindset before we even go into like a physical practice we try to understand where your mindset is what your limiting beliefs are what has happened in the past to you um, whether it's a big trauma or sometimes small trauma and sometimes it's indirect trauma that actually that actually affects um, you know your your vulva or your penis so we kind of go through and understand these limiting beliefs and what is really blocking blocking you physically and mentally from like essentially exploring uh, pain or exploring pleasure. Um, Normally, when someone goes through trauma, for example, they have either pain or numbness attached to their genitals. So getting to the root of that. So the first four weeks is really much about like mindset and understanding where you are and why you're there. And then we would um, set practices. And it's a lot of the way I do it. Everybody runs their sessions differently. The way I do it is we would have a session where I would go through some basic maybe information that is important and then we have a chat we might have like a guided session where i might guide you through like a different maybe mindful practice or like a meditation and then i would also send you maybe another practice where um it's almost like guided exploration (laughs) not guided masturbation but exploration um there's also some journaling and some prompts and we do check-ins as well and we don't go all in at once it's really much smaller steps and working with the neuroplasticity of your brain to rewire, you know, rewire that pain into pleasure or that numbness into pleasure, essentially. So it's a very much of a small steps um, to get to where you want to go. But at the minimum, you'd see me for like four weeks. Would be ideal. Yeah. Okay. I'm thinking about going. Come to I me. don't know. I just feel like everyone <laughs> should like, <laughs> there are yeah, just I things think- that you should know like everyone should know about like their trauma history and be aware of it everybody should like learn about their attachment style or their communication style like because knowing about yourself 
allows you to know about others, right? 100%. And I think we never really understand how things really manifest in our body, right? Like, and we just normalize a lot of things, especially for women as well. It's even more that we, okay, you can do all these things to me, you know, but like you maybe there's a lot of blockage, there's a lot of shame attached to a lot of these topics. So really, like you said, like understanding where these are coming from, and why we think the way we are, and why we're conditioned this way, and how we can strip this conditioning can be very empowering for someone who maybe just initially came to you because they couldn't orgasm and they just leave with like a boost of confidence and like more understanding of themselves as a whole. Um, yeah, it's definitely an area we don't, we have basic knowledge on, but we don't really explore or push our boundaries in, let's say. Yeah, no, I like the destigmatization of like yeah. different things related to sex because it's everywhere and it's all the time. But yeah, you're right. There's so much shame attached to it. So it's like, how do we like deconstruct that shame, especially as women? You know what I mean? This like double standard for yeah, us in our lives is bullshit. It's complete bullshit. bullshit. It's like, if I engage in sexual activity, like I'm a slut, but if I don't, I'm approved. Like I literally can't win. Yeah, it, it's, it's exactly that. It's either you're too asexual or you're too sexual and like this trying to find this medium is impossible in a society where I think a lot of people want to see women as you know the sexual object but then like when they are actually empowered by it and like take their pleasure take their power back they're intimidated and they're like oh but like you're too much or you're this and it's it's all double standards it's all bullshit and like I said like our sexuality for, for me I believe like and our pleasure is our own and I think we've given a lot of power to society or to people in our lives, if whether it's who we're dating or who we've dated. And it's really about like reclaiming that back and owning it and being like, this is who I am. And you can be sexual and not sexual. And that's totally fine. Like you don't have to have sex or you can have sex. You know, like we just need to normalize this idea of people can do whatever the fuck they want with their own genitals, essentially. <laughs> do what you want with their genitals. Great takeaway from this podcast. <laughs> So in terms of like understanding yourself better, like let's talk about attachment theory. Mm. I like how it's coming up a lot. I feel like people are really getting in touch with like what the fuck that means. And I like touch on it here and there in some episodes, you know, like obviously your foundational experience with your primary mm. caretaker kind of informs like the relationships you have in the rest of your life, you know, even like 20, 30 years later, like it's, it's integral to who you are and how you communicate. So like, how do we get attached? Why do we get attached? What are the styles? Like, can you tell us about that? Yeah, um, I love attachment theory. I don't necessarily spend so much time on it because I think sometimes we like to, we like to say, oh, we're going to put ourselves, I'm this. And then like, it's almost like a fixed thing. It's, it's just a good map of understanding um, how we love and how we like to be loved and just understanding that on its own and then knowing what your partner likes. It's just like, I see it as like a love language, you know, it's just giving you a bit more detailed into how you form your relationships and your, you know, intimate bonds. But like you said, um, attachment theory from the research that we know states that most of our attachment styles are formed when we are children. So essentially we soak up and see what kind of environment we grew up in we see how our dads are treating our mom this is in a very typical household let's say and our you know, mom treats our dad and this is kind of like okay this is how love is um so essentially this is where we learn how to treat each other so um there's different types 
So essentially it's created when we are children and the different levels of dependency that we express or that we that we see when we grow up is kind of how we form attachment um, styles. You, anyone who's listening is interested, book called Attached, <laughs> Attachment Theories, um, and we can put a link to it somewhere if you'd like. And this is a great book if we want to get more in, into details, but I'll go into, you know, different types and like how they're formed and what you might be feeling if you are one of these attachment, you know, styles. Okay, um, who, wait, who is that by? Attached by? It's by Rachel S.F. Heller and Amir Levine, forward by John Gray. It's a great book. It's a great book. It, it has certain parts that you can fill in and it's, it's very, very more holistic than what we will go through. But essentially there's three slash four attachment styles, but most people fall under one of these three. So the first attachment style that we know is called a anxious preoccupied attachment style. And from the research that's done, we think this is about 20% of the population. So these are people who, like it states, are constantly anxious in the relationship. So they pull very close, very quickly, and they crave a lot of love. They crave a lot of intimacy. And um, usually this has manifested in someone's uh, adulthood or you know, their, later on their love life because um, that person either has been physically or emotionally abandoned by one or multiple parents. And they weren't able to get this emotional consistency as they were growing up. So in order to get that love, um, when they were younger, the child develops this like protest behavior. So they cry a lot or they want to get more attention, do things to just get their parents to care for them, essentially. And um, over constantly, they feel this like lack of love and therefore they crave it more. So they crave intimacy. They don't have confidence um, in the relationship that anyone would actually truly love them. So then therefore, they're just constantly anxious and they need a lot of reassurance. Um, it's exhausting for that person because side note, there's an interesting study that talks in this book about they've, they took different types of uh, attachment styles and they've put them in a room and they showed them pictures of people's faces. And um, they just needed to mark these people. They just need to mark if they were happy or what kind of emotion those um, faces were, you know, showing. And, you know, between all the emotions, there is one face that there is a very, very, very slight, let's say, um, like worry that's expressed in the face that's so slight that only people who were anxious were able to pick it up because they developed such a higher sensitive way of perceiving and understanding. So they're hypersensitive to body language, to words. So they're just on edge all the time. It's they like learn to be like tuned in and exactly. very, very like aware of other people's exactly. emotions. But it's also hard for the other partner because because this person is constantly worrying about you know, oh, is this person going to lose interest in me? Oh, they're never going to love me. Even years into the relationship, um, they have a hard time just trusting that the relationship will work and that someone will actually love them. And these are people who end up actually being in self-fulfilling relationships because they tend to drive the person away um, because they're constantly testing their partner. They're constantly pushing boundaries, self-sabotaging and just seeing if, because they know that ultimately that person will leave. So they're like, let me push them as far as I can, because I know they're going to leave me. Um, so this is kind of the anxious style. And if you are not sure if you're, you know, maybe in the anxious preoccupied group, you can ask yourself, like, do I feel incomplete when I'm single? Do I feel constantly afraid that if you're in a relationship that your partner or partner is going to leave you? Are you trying to make your partner jealous or like triggered in some way to see if they will chase you or if they will give attention to you? Or do you often feel like you worry that 
your partner one day is going to stop loving you or that you have one one argument over something very small like dinner and you have this argument and then you constantly think okay it's over the relationship is over they're going to leave me anyways so these are the kind of questions that an anxious person would say yes to so this is the first group and <laughs> if we're being honest this is the group that i fell into and this is why i wanted to understand this why resonates was... with you yeah. <laughs> this resonates deeply <laughs> and um it's actually when i read this book i read this book a couple of years ago i felt so happy because i was like damn this is like scientific research there's reasons why we feel the way we feel like i'm not crazy like i want to understand more about this yeah That's empowering cool. and validating for sure i was just going to throw in the book i'm reading the body keeps score they also talk yeah. about attachment theory this one study where scientists conducted thousands of hours of mother infant pairs together just to see how infants would react when the mom leaves and for the anxious attached style the infant would cry and scream and be like genuinely upset that the mother left but then they would derive little comfort from the mom returning yeah which was like an interesting little tidbit yeah. that i was like huh it's interesting also like I have a friend who's working with uh like babies and like child psychology and um she also has very interesting inputs on like attachment styles from her research that she's conducting and um she said that there's so much research done on uh, when babies are crying like if we should go and comfort them or if we should just leave them cry and I think for the longest time especially during our parents' generation there was this whole idea of if you if you want to be a good parent no matter how much your child cries like uh, please don't go and hold them because they will eventually fall asleep or they, let them self soothe so exactly. wait is that a myth we should not be doing yeah that? so this book says that if parents who did leave their children uh crying these are people these are the people that tend to also develop this kind of like um anxious style yeah oh, no oh my god the light bulbs are going off. Anybody listening? I'm so sorry that happened. Are you okay? I mean, it's interesting because that was the science back then. Like a lot of psychologists were saying like, this is the right thing to do. So I think just the more we study love and sexuality in general, like there's still so much that we need to do and like learn um, that yeah, we'll look back at these years and be like, what the fuck they were thinking, you know? <laughs> well, it's interesting about like attachment styles at all is because I feel like what I've heard a lot is they're like, our parents or whatever, they're like, oh, children don't remember anything before, you know, the age of two or three. And attachment theory says like, no, the second you are with your child, yeah. like the ticker starts, like every yeah. interaction counts and it will impact them in the future. Even, even not to get like two ch children psychology on this, but like even in the womb, right? Like I think they did so much research on like mothers who put like music, Mozart versus, I don't know, like reggae or something. There was like a research I was reading that children actually develop certain um, characteristics of the way they approach music and even stuff like that and even when you're in the womb you're actually observing a lot and you know taking in a lot so now that I think we're aware of it that we will pass on and be more cautious with our children but it's good to know why we because sometimes I think we just can't make sense of why we're acting this way and we're like I'm crazy or I'm clingy and clingy is you know such a belittling world to like what you're actually feeling let's go more deeper into really understanding yeah. why we're why we're like this so after the anxious attachment style we have the avoidant which is the complete opposite of anxious so these are people that tend to 
push people away. They want a lot of space. They feel very suffocated very quickly. It again, if we look at usually the people who are avoidant, if we look at their childhood, they usually are growing up in a household where they don't feel safe. So contrary to the anxious that doesn't feel loved, this person doesn't feel safe. Therefore, they think they can't trust anyone around them. So they develop this uh, persona of almost like I'm the lone wolf and I can only depend on myself. Everyone else is going to be untrustworthy and they'll leave. So if their parent has broken trust um, during, you know, the time that they were growing up, this is kind of how it uh, manifests into their adulthood. So um, contrary to the anxious, they feel very, um, very uh, scared about going into a relationship. They don't like intimacy. They don't like commitment. Um, to all my exes out there, <laughs> hello. Um, hello. They, <laughs> hello. <if you're> listening. <laughs> uh, I will get into like what types tend to match each other. So these are people also who have a um, who have in their mind that they have to find the one. It's why when they're in a relationship, they will always think, "Oh, there must be something better for me." It's kind of self-sabotaging in that way. There must be someone better for me. That's the one. Therefore, I'm gonna leave. Right. So they. Kind of have this like deactivating behavior they diminish um kind of like attraction and love from people they and cling to their independence exactly and um it's also quite self-sabotaging for them and for their uh for their relationships so have a hard time you know expressing like i love you or like you know you mean a lot to me and um yeah they went the second the relationship there's some minor thing wrong they will say okay i knew you weren't the one bye this I feel attacked of, right now. <laughs> no, this is, no, I mean, it's also, you know, it's, it's stemming from childhood. It's uh, definitely the anxious and avoidant tend to attract one another. It's kind of like we live our childhood traumas because we want to correct the childhood trauma subconsciously. So we do so trying in our relationships, but it never happens. So we're just constantly living that trauma, which feels comfortable and familiar therefore we think it's love not to get too like existential but what essentially Whoa. happens is the anxious will come the avoidant will like the attention the avoidant will like that they're being wanted um and then when the anxious pushes too much the avoidant starts to pull away and then we have this push and pull for you know many many cycles many many years many many months fucked up part of all of this is i was reading a study by hinge um a couple of days ago and they also stated that most people that are on dating apps are avoidance <laughs> because they just don't want to date. <laughs> so be careful, people. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> and it's usually anxious people because the last type that we have, the last attachment type is the secure attachment type. And shout out to everyone that grew up in a normal household with normal ass parents who just know how to love and like receive and give love in like a very trustworthy, independent, nurturing and like deep way. Um, they know how to give it without smothering it. And these are the type of people that tend to um, find one another. And then we have the anxious avoidant, uh, which is described in the book, which is having two traits of both. But overall, when we look at attachment theory, after this book, there was a lot more research done. And it said, you know, our, avoid our, our styles can change. Um, we normally have one dominant style, but they can change and vary. So if you're listening and thinking, oh, I have a bit of this and a bit of this, also depends on the partner and the relationship you're in. If you're an anxious person and you are someone with someone who's secure, yeah. if you know how to communicate, that person will understand. And sometimes that person just needs reassurance. So they can actually make the anxious person more secure by, you know, 
understanding their boundaries and giving them what they need are securely um, attached people a myth like it feels like a unicorn no no it's conversation. like do i know any like i don't i don't know like do you know any who I mean, where are it, these people i know where are they they're all they're all either in the relationships or they're married by now it is apparently most of the population is secure i'm not really sure about that <laughs> i don't know if you're going to read this book, just one thing I would like to say um, is this book is a bit, <laughs> I was a bit sad after reading this book because it concludes that only like, I don't know, something like 2% of people can change their attachment styles. Like basically like, so sorry that you're, you have anxious or avoidant styles and just like, good luck. You should find someone secure. This is kind of the solution it gives. Where's and I was the like, hope in that? I need I redemption. Like, really? <laughs> I was like, damn, you wrote this whole book and you kind of did something you know, inspiring at the end. But I do think this is coming from a very like clinical approach. Like I said, I think the more now with the rise of, you know, therapy being normalized. And if we even start looking at like holistic methods of like ch um, channeling and maybe healing your um, inner childhood and childhood traumas, I think I believe personally that you can heal and develop more secure attachment styles and kind of work towards like being secure yourself. I think those triggers will always come up, but you can definitely put in place strategies to cope with certain triggers when they come up in relationships where one, you know, the patterns of what to look for and mm -hmm. two, that and prevent before something gets really like a snowball effect and gets really um, serious in a relationship. So going back real quick to avoid an attached in that scientific study that I mentioned where they mm. spent hours looking at mother infant pairs, um, they found that with the avoid and attached, nothing bothered them. When their mom left, they didn't care. And when their mom came back, they didn't care. And so like, what do you think that looks like in a relationship? in modern day 2021 those people have grown into adults like yeah. like how are they in conflict you know what i mean and like what is an anxious person like in conflict i think uh for the avoidant how that looks like is because ultimately they are scared of real intimacy when someone pulls away it's almost also like self-fulfilling to their belief system of oh i couldn't trust you anyways in the first place so might as well go because you're wasting my time so i think they're less likely to really fight for anything or anyone because they know that ultimately ultimately they don't really <laughs> want a relationship nor do they want like a real commitment or they think they can't give um the time or the energy that like a relationship needs so i think for them it's almost like they would push away a person without really giving them a chance so it's um disheartening in a sense that you might actually have like a really good connection with someone and you might just be pushing them away because you ultimately uh, think that they are going to betray you in some way or they're not your quote unquote like ride or die. But for the anxious person, I think it's the opposite in a sense that how it will manifest is I, I think this is a personal experience. I think uh, what's going to happen is um, they have a very hard time letting go. So I think you give a lot of your values you give a lot of yourself and it's almost like you are trying to cater to someone else's life values belief systems before your own and it's almost like losing yourself you hear sometimes people say when they come out of a relationship it's almost like i've lost myself and i'm rediscovering myself if we're losing ourselves in a relationship i think that's already a bit of a red flag i mean you should be building on yourself with your partner but if you are completely and your friends can't you know, recognize you or you, you know, disconnected from your family and friends and 
you're solely catering to this person, their schedule, you're taking a lot of crap that you wouldn't, you know, and you're justifying those actions to your partners. We've all had friends. No, he's just, you know, like he's just, he's really busy and he's working like a three hour part-time job while you're like juggling <laughs> 10 things. It's shit like this. So I think that person finds themselves in, uh, in situations where they've essentially, essentially, I think, given up on their own values and their own self-worth. And I think what happens is after you come out of such an intense relationship like that, you've, it's almost like before you forgive the person, you have to forgive yourself for letting someone take that from you, right? Like you've mm -hmm. chipped away from your own self-love, your self-worth, and you kind of have to redefine like yourself. Oh yeah. Like we are both still two separate individuals, but we're in a relationship and we're helping each other grow and we're adding value to each other's lives, not taking away. Yeah. I, I think I always think of it like one plus one makes it three, right? It's almost like you come together and it's almost like you're trying to create this base together. I almost think of it like a triangle um, rather than one plus one is one or, you know, like, you know, it, it's, it's yeah. exactly that. It's that you add on and the relationship is where both pour into um, into this container that you there's you yourself. there's me and then there's we in the center exactly. I like that that's right oh wait that's a square Love <laughs> Triangle. That. <laughs> let's, let's go so we kind of touched on like um certain kinds of trauma or neglect or the care that you get as a child can really impact mm. your attachment and your, and your ability to be intimate with people, but like how can other forms of trauma affect intimacy? And how do you help people work through that kind of thing? Yeah, I'm still myself, just for reference, like I'm still educating myself on types of trauma, how that manifests in the body, what that means uh, in terms of like your sex life and sexual health. So I'm by no means an expert, but from okay. what I know, um like you mentioned with, numbness and like yeah. that's one way it can manifest but yeah what, so, sorry what were you gonna say yeah so normally uh, if we're thinking about how it manifests in your genitals or your like sexual um sexual life it's normally one or the other so either the area becomes really numb or it becomes extremely painful both of which are reasons why people don't even want to go there. And this could be, this could be because of, um, like I said, like this could be sexual trauma. This could also be um, if you, and I've, I, I know I some friends that if you, let's say, contracted some sort of STI or STD, and maybe you weren't aware of it, like HPV is a very common one. And, you know, 70% of people have it. And like, we don't still know, like, and women, yeah, I mean, it, same. I mean, herpes, like these are very, very common um common STDs and we don't still understand the symptoms, let alone like ask to be get tested on certain things. So um, some, so HPV, uh, for those who don't know, it's, it's very common. It's one of, it's the most common um, sexually transmitted disease. And um, normally it's fine. It comes up in the body and, you know, you don't have to take any medication, but there's more serious forms where if you don't take care of it, um, it can lead to very serious uh, health risks and end up in like you might not have 
um, children, for example, or like other complications. So Please. I had HPV like five years ago and luckily it just went away, but oh yeah. my God, what a scare. <laughs> Normally, and you know, there was a vaccine for it and we, I, I don't know, when we were growing up, like everybody got it. And yeah, there okay, was- so there's a vaccine, right? The like three-part Gardasil, whatever. Fun fact, there's like 18 kinds of HPV more. and more. there's more. And the Gardasil only protected against like six different kinds. So I got the shot and I still got HPV and I was like, what the fuck science? (laughs) I think it's also, I mean, yeah, I think it was for like a specific type of cervical cancer. But the point is like, I have some friends who, you know, had HPV or other um, STIs and then they didn't get them treated. And then what happens is your, um, your uterine canal essentially can close off or there could be um, your pH is so off that like you cannot even touch it because the um, the skin inside just becomes so sensitive and then therefore it's a big hassle to even fix that itself because there's a lot of antibiotics which throw off your pH even more and you're in this like ongoing cycle which then can cause so much pain that even after you're, you're done with this treatment that can last long you just don't want to go there because now it's so painful that you know you can't even touch it so if you have pain if you have numbness um, this is the two types that I know that how it manifests in the body and um, you can work through it. Like I said, um, we working with the um, brain's neuroplasticity, which is the way our neurological pathways are, you know, wired, essentially, you can train your body through different self like self guided sessions and practices and breath as well to associate that numbness or that pain with pleasure back again and for anyone who's listening who has these problems i am currently working for this app and the app is called kama and it's essentially like headspace for sexual wellness where they have a lot of different practices for couples what is is it called kama it's k-a-m-a it's oh oh like kama sutra okay yeah yeah and they have so many different practices um where you know we have in-house sex coaches that guide you through if you can't have orgasm if you have pain if you have pleasure if you have erectile dysfunction these kind of things and um you can start to slowly build your you know build your um senses back to rewiring that pleasure you know that numbness or that pain into pleasure essentially interesting how do we love ourselves better Mm. besides like addressing like our traumas finding out our attachment style, figuring out best ways to communicate with our partner, whether it's about (laughs) sex or just like life in general. Mm. Um, But yeah, how do we like love ourselves after doing all of that like work? I think like, it's such an interesting question. Self-love is, you know, it's we hear it everywhere now, right? It's almost become like a marketing where like, more self-love sign up for the six-week boot camp like what so um spend your money to love yourself yeah exactly like okay (laughs) I think it can mean different things for anyone but for me when I think of self-love it's about you know how do I show up for myself and how do I honor myself the good and the bad so not bypassing anything and I personally and I make a list and I'm a big fan of lists so this might not be for everyone but I think of self-love and I think of it in categories so emotional physical mental and spiritual and or if you are spiritual maybe more you know soul level and then I literally go through and think like emotionally for example for me it will be keeping a promise to myself for example um it's like intuition it's a muscle you have to exercise every day and 
physically. I think it can be anything from like a bubble bath, manicure. I think sometimes we throw in such big concepts that actually it's the small things that add up during the day that you do that I think add to your sense of love rather than like these grand things, which we can do, right? Like take a big trip, do spoil yourself, of course. But what are you doing on the daily that is feeding your soul and feeding, you know, this loving container that you are? Uh, spiritually I think a lot of people you know are starting to meditate or know the benefits of it connecting with nature whenever we can or have the privilege to go outside intuition in any way I mean I'm a big fan of uh, like cards and like journaling and like all this um, whatever works for you right mentally could be you know listening to a podcast like yours reading so it's just how you show up for yourself how you honor yourself how you give to yourself and for me how you fill your own cup and then from there, we can use sex as healing, which like, again, I'll go back to very interesting because like, yeah, sex feels good. Yeah, sex is fun. But I never really thought about it until I found you as it being medicine. Mm. And like, then I got into reading about like tantric sex and it's not just about going to pound town sometimes yeah. and reaching <laughs> like the final destination of like an orgasm. So like, can you talk to us more about that? Like you said, you're studying, um, tantric right now yeah so I'm really privileged because I'm also working right now and studying tantra with um someone called Debbie Ward Erickson and she runs the uh first government accredited tantra center in the world it's based in Vancouver BC it's called authentic tantra for anyone that's interested they're on Instagram and um they basically have like an individual program and for people who want to get into this but this whole like sex is medicine I also came across her profile and I was like this is this is so interesting like let me learn more about this which is why this whole like PhD thing got sparked for me in the first place essentially um it's about working with ancient wisdom and coupling it with modern science of understanding you know what really is pleasure what really is sex energy so just to give you a context of why we say sex is medicine there was a lot of research done on understanding what happens to us when we orgasm, what happens to us when we're, you know, in intercourse and what happens to your brain, essentially when it's, um, when it reaches that orgasm peak, let's say. And what they found is both in meditation and during orgasm, which is very similar in terms of our brain patterns, we lose our sense of awareness, we have heightened body, body positivity image, and we have decreased sense of pain. All of this expresses itself because our brain essentially goes into theta and delta waves. Um, which is very similar to when you're in deep state meditation, which is why we say you are able to reach higher levels of consciousness, because if you look at the scale of consciousness, these wavelengths are essentially at the top part of the, the scale that we talk about. Um, so these states correlate to level, higher levels of consciousness where, I mean, everyone who hopefully had an orgasm felt that they've kind of lost themselves, right? Like it's not even about it, the orgasm itself is not sexual. It's that you feel this sense of bliss washing over you where you feel very much connected. And the reason why Tantra works with this is, and there's different types of Tantra, but what this specific lineage of Tantra works with is it shows you that through orgasm, you can feel connected to, if we're getting spiritual, like source or universe or God, whatever you would like to define it as. But this is kind of the chakra, if we're talking about chakras, it, that is your sacral chakra that you know is directly related to creativity itself so if you think of an orgasm normally it lasts what anywhere from 10 seconds to 15 seconds sometimes 20 
and these practices and these, you know, wisdom that we have, we look at how can you stretch that to a couple of minutes? And then how can you stretch that to maybe a couple of hours? And then how can you really, after you even had the orgasm, use that energy that now you have circulating in your body to channel it through either your creative work or, you know, other sorts of activities that you do on the daily. And that's kind of the medicine part of it. But even if you're listening and like, you don't buy into this holistic sense of sexual energy and sex as medicine itself, because some people are still very skeptical. Even if we look at the science that we have now, that's proven that there is so many benefits to having an orgasm either with by yourself or with a partner, so many health benefits. So, you know, I think um, I talked about this in one of my posts, but you know, with this like feeling of euphoria and pleasure, we know that the body um, reduces stress through high levels of oxytocin, which is great if you're, you know, always on fight or flight mode, or if you're stressed, or if you're working all the time, there's decreased pain. So if you have any menstrual cramps, for example, if you do some self-pleasuring, you will know that, you know, your muscles actually relax and there's less tension. It improves your pelvic floor muscles to be more stronger, which is great. Um, you know, it improves your quality of sleep. It burns calories. <laughs> like it promotes relaxation. It there's totally blood helps flow. sleep. <laughs> you know, you're just like, exactly. You're like glowing. You have better hair. You have better mental sharpness. So we know that there's, and I'm not, to anyone, when I posted this, there were so many people commenting, what should I be doing this six, seven times a day? I'm not saying go hard. I mean, you can, but don't like, you know, like it's more of a, it, on the daily, it's a nice practice. I mean, we don't think about scheduling in self So like once a day. I would say it keeps the doctor away. But like, you know, think about, even if you're single, just think about scheduling in time for your own self-pleasure because we've, especially as women have been taught I think people feel very like ashamed after masturbation or as women like, oh, like I feel dirty or sometimes people feel weird about using toys. No, like if you want to use a toy, use a toy. If you don't, don't. If you want to watch porn, watch porn. You know, just scheduling in that time is also for me like a sense of um, self-love as well, you know? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I know some people, I did a masturbation episode and like we talked about porn and stuff and yeah, there are a lot of people who like get sexual pleasure from their partner and that's the only place they get mm. it. And they're not really, they haven't really met themselves in that capacity of like, what do I like mm. to do to me? Which like to me, logically, that's a, like a foundational piece to like helping anybody else pleasure you. Definitely. But yeah, just there's so much shame surrounding it. So like deconstructing that is really important. Good job, dude. You're helping the world out there. I'm um, one orgasm at a time. <laughs> Doesn't it help you live longer? Like literally all for all those reasons and benefits yeah. you just explained. Like yeah. have they done people, studies on that yet? I think like, so, I think so too. I think they were saying people who have an orgasm a day are I think they're like live fifteen or something years longer. Something like this. I was reading <laughs> we're all immortal, I swear. Oh my god, men do not need to be hearing this because they will <laughs> never leave their rooms. <laughs> we're gonna have callous dicks. <laughs> like everyone's just out here. <laughs> So I think a lot of people talk about like red flags in relationships, mm. but what are some green flags, you know, like, let's put a positive spin on it. Like, what can I see in, you know, a prospective partner that I'm maybe dating or spending time with, but I'm not sure yet. Like, what are some like good signs, you know, yeah. like, like, oh, this person is securely attached. And I know because this or, you know, like, what can we look for? I think, I mean, I have my own list, but I think this is like, of course, there's so many more green flags. And depending on the type of relationship that you're in, style of the relationship, of course, these can kind of vary. But for me, the green flags look like 
one about people's words aligning with their actions. Oh my God, that's so important. That's so (laughs) important. I think there's a lot of BS that we talk, but really when someone says something, do they show up? And two is, you know, is the climate of the relationship consistent? So there is, you know, we have arguments, that's normal. We might have ups and downs, but overall, is there a consistent climate within your relationship? not up and down and highs and lows and we, we've all been there I've been there of highs and lows and it's addicting and we go back to that cycle but how do we create this um in a level of consistency um three is what we talked about in terms of one plus one equaling three of how do we create this partnership where we're not in competition but we are actually in this nurturing container that we don't belittle belittle each other but we're actually adding to our own growth right how do I give you enough independence and how do you give me independence and support that we both uplift each other? I think a and lot of times we're on the same team. Like we're not exactly. against each other. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, why they have side note arguments. And I work with couples who have arguments all the time is because they want to be right. Like don't try to be right. <laughs> try to solve the problem as quickly as possible. I'm not saying by bypassing or just saying yes to whatever argument you're having, but ultimately remember that you're in the same team and you want to resolve an issue, not be right right? (laughs) So um, just the side note, I think that's important. So that goes back to like solving solvable problems. If you do have a problem of, you know, if people are able to apologize when they're wrong, you know, a lot of times our ego gets the best of us. And instead of holding grudges, just knowing when to solve your problems. And this goes back to a lot of research that I read by John Gottman, who's a big um, relationship um, and marriage therapist based in Seattle. The Gottman Institute. it's amazing. He, um, he's been researching couples and he's developed a method where he can um, explore and just observe couples for 15 minutes. And I think with 94% accuracy, know that if they're going to divorce or which is like in, within seven years, which is like insane. I and did what, read about that. Yeah. In the book Blink, he like splices yeah. conversations. Like, yeah. like you said, he only has to listen to a little bit and just like from the words that they use and the tone of their voice mm-hmm. and the things they're talking about, he can determine whether or not they're going to last. Exactly. Is that cool so, or is that sad? I don't know. I mean, it's hopeful <laughs> in a sense that he has like a couple of um, couple of takeaways, I guess, from the book that I'm referring to. He's also mentioned there. There's a, another book that he wrote uh, making, a, I think, eight principles of making a marriage work. He's talking about marriage, but I think it applies to relationships. And one of the key things that he talks about is like solve solvable problems, right? And if you know you can't solve them, this is when you seek therapy. It's prevention therapy. Is not You don't have to wait until the last moment to talk to someone. And there's many people now, many coaches, many therapists that you can talk to. I would say if they are aware of, you know, if they can apologize, then, you know, let their ego down. Great. Another one is, you know, they set honor and respect their boundaries and your boundaries. Easier said than done, I think. They can communicate honestly, authentically. We know when, you know, sometimes we have to have hard uh, conversations and, you know, we're able to do so without feeling ashamed and they make you feel seen, appreciated. Um, They show up and we use the word show up a lot, but I think it's about like really when you need to talk to someone, they are there for you and they're listening to you not to just respond or just dismiss or say oh it's okay blah blah don't but like really just hold space for you without really giving their two cents and just allow you to just empty your vessel essentially because sometimes you just need to rant and then you just need to be like okay someone's there for me to hold me so Mm -hmm. you know we talk about this I think 
it's important depending on what kind of relationship you're in, but you have like compatible goals for the relationship itself. It doesn't have to be that every time we're in a relationship, we're going to end up in marriage. I think we have this like dating thing of like, we're either fucking or we're going to get married. Like there's a lot of in between. These Everybody's two. out for the long haul. Yeah, it's for real. Fun. And it <laughs> seems like, like you reach a point in the relationship where it's like, okay, what are, what is it going to be? Are we going to be together or are we not? You know, and it's like, that's so intense. And I don't know. I think life might be more about like, you're going to have relationships at different points for your different needs, you know, because as you grow, your needs will change. 100%. And I think what's interesting now with dating during COVID is we're even having these like intense conversations, which I think is in a way good because it requires you to know what you want. Therefore, it requires to know yourself a bit better of, I mean, we can, but most people now are a bit more cautious when they're meeting someone. And if they do, they're more cautious about like sexually engaging it with someone. So we're having these conversations of, oh, before like, I don't know, the hundredth lockdown, like, are we going to be exclusive? How many people are you seeing? Are you sleeping with someone? These are questions that we maybe bypassed in the past or didn't really have in the first couple of dates. We definitely put it off for way longer than we do during COVID. COVID is making people like DTR, like define (laughs) the shit immediately are you sleeping with other people what is this what do you want it's stressful it's stressful but i think it's good as an avoidant attachment person it's stressing me out i'm like whoa i I don't i think no, no what i mean is i think it's good in a sense that it's adding to the conversations of sexual health of if someone is asking you what you want it's almost like I have to know what I want. And I think sometimes what we want doesn't have to mean like, I want a serious relationship or I want this, but it's more about like, like I really want to explore and I'm casually dating. Okay. So like, let's sound boundaries on how are we going to, you know, keep this respectful, healthy there. So it's, I think opening the conversation rather than like, and if people are using this time to like corner you into any kind of forced relationship when you're not ready, like no one should be in a situation where they don't want to mutually agree to of any kind so definitely not what I'm saying but I think it's asking us to be a bit more open from the Mm get-go which then like helps us identify what type of styles we have um so in terms of the virus like I have questions about like the polyamorous people out there like are you okay like did your pod close down because of COVID and like are you back to monogamy and like hoping that when it ends or everyone gets vaccinated you can go back to your real life like are, are they okay I don't know I I don't know either that's a really good question like how are they navigating this time I think it's so much more different than monogamous heterosexual like couples right right because that's what everyone's doing they're like okay I'm only seeing you so like if we get COVID we get COVID but at least like we'll know where you know or whatever are the poly people okay let me know um let us know <laughs> <laughs> Do you have like a relationship challenge to give the people like a question to ask their partner to spark good communication? I would say for anyone out there who has a partner and they feel like they're they're bored and they don't really know how to have the conversation of like what things they should try. Um, I encourage everyone to tr- um, DM or like just look up what's called the yes, no, maybe list. It's essentially a very exhaustive list of all the sexual acts you could do. And it's really fun to just go through it with someone else and just circle things that you might want to try. I also have a free one, so you can just DM me and I'll just send it to you for free. Um, and it might just be like a fun, you know, Tuesday exercise for anyone who's listening. 
spice up your sex life, people. Well, thank you so much for being on. Sushi Malik, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. This was amazing. And um, I do have some last bit spicy tips for anyone who maybe oh. is looking to look at, maybe spice up their sex life a little bit or, you know, wants to introduce some different sensation play into the bedroom. Oh my God, um, tell us how to make our lives spicy. <laughs> so one thing I really like is, you know, just using stuff that's already in your house. I mean, it's great if you have lube and, you know, different tastes or different, you know, hot or cold lube. But one thing that most people have in their house is honey. So I love using honey during foreplay, which I call foreplay. So what you can do with something a little fun is, um, you know, one person can just get blindfolded. And the other person can just take a bit of honey, dab it somewhere in their body. So it can be your neck, it can be, you know, your pussy, it can be oh your nipples, whatever God. you want. <laughs> and then you essentially tell, you know, your partner to find it with their tongue. And this can take, you know, long time. If, if, you, hide it, if you hide <laughs> it, it really well. well. <laughs> exactly, get creative. And it's just a fun way to, um, you know, explore, your, you know, your partner to explore your body. Um, and you can do this with, you know, other types of syrup. If you don't like honey, chocolate syrup or whatever. So this is kind of a whipped cream, peanut butter. Exactly. Just don't put it in. <laughs> don't put it in. But anywhere around is totally good. <laughs> I also really like, um, you know, just playing with the sensation of hot and cold. Um, for girls, I would, you know, if before you go down on someone, you can always try to drink something hot or put an ice cube. And try to, um, you know, give oral just to see if your partner likes the different sensation. An ice cube blowjob. Okay. An ice cube blowjob. We're, we're, getting, <laughs> we're getting creative during COVID. Or you can, for, for my guys out there who, you know, are in, um, you know, uh, you know, like, uh, if you have a girlfriend that you would like or you want to go down on someone, I really like, uh, I personally really like, I think it feels really good um, when someone has like a mint in their mouth or like a halls or it's creates a bit of like a, oh the minty yeah, flavor the minty flavor and they go down on you and then I think afterwards like you just have this like really cool sensation so or you can take champagne in your mouth and then go down on someone and it gives you like a very bubbly feeling as oh, well interesting so you can just try these different things and maybe think of other areas that you can take an ice cube for a girl and just go through your you know your partner's body um you know just introducing different sensations can always um spice up your sex life a little dude bit. that is very sexy <laughs> i hope people do that the honey thing is like such a good idea the honey thing. dm me if you do it i love it <laughs> <laughs> i will let you know i will be doing this um but yeah so thanks for wow fucking spicing it up at the end it's very on brand for butterfly i feel like for people to be giving sex advice um also you guys she mentioned earlier the comma app um the sexual wellness app that's like headspace but for sex like check that mm -hmm. out we talked about attachment theory the book attached mm -hmm. um and how the body keeps store we gave them a lot of book recs i feel yeah. like These you can also check out um authentic tantra if you want to learn a bit more about tantra uh they have a podcast as well weekly podcast if you want to listen more uh towards like what tantra is and you know how you can use tantric practices it's also a really good resource to check out and uh yeah i always post resources on uh, my stories or like on my content as well so if you have any questions about certain topic i can always you know point you to the correct yeah send this chick a dm she's awesome where can they find you one more time instagram yes. and tiktok 
Instagram and TikTok website is coming soon. I'll spell it out. <laughs> it's T-U-G-C-E-B-A-L-I-K. Uh, Balik. Not the most <laughs> user-friendly, but it is my name. And uh, yeah, you can just send me a DM if you have any questions. And yeah, we can start talking. Awesome. Thanks so much for being on, TJ Balik, everyone. Thank you for and having me. Look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you.